Okay, good evening everyone. Welcome to our evening Dhamma session. So the other talk that I'm set to give this month at this conference is on wrong mindfulness. I'm not sure if I've talked about this before, but Certainly haven't given this talk yet, so save you all the cost of coming out to the conference. I'll try to practice it tonight. And not the talk, but just what I'm the sorts the sorts of things I'm gonna talk about to get a feel for what's important to say. So wrong mindfulness. Um when we talk about wrong mindfulness, we're, we're concerned about how the practice goes wrong. The practice can go wrong. And uh, so the first thing to do is to talk about what, what we mean by this word mindfulness. And when we understand mindfulness, then we can talk about how mindfulness can go wrong. I mean, it's an interesting um, choice of a topic. It wasn't the one I picked. It wasn't picked by me. It was, but when I asked about what they what they meant, why did they choose this topic? They really meant how the practice can go wrong, because this happens. People go and do meditation courses here and there, and and things can go wrong. It's never really happened for me, so I'm not trying to scare anyone. It's not the sort of thing that happens to our students. But uh, it's interesting to talk about. I mean, not our meditators are not perfect and things do go wrong, but we're here to correct them. It's just not such a difficult thing to do. So it's, it is important to know the, the, the various ways it can go wrong. It doesn't really mean that mindfulness can ever be wrong in that sense, but I'll talk about that at the end of the talk, a way that it could be seen to be wrong mindfulness. It's interesting. Well, there are four ways we can think of it. But first thing to do is to talk about what we mean by mindfulness, right? If we're going to talk about wrong mindfulness, we have to talk about mindfulness or, or even right mindfulness. And of course, um, I mean, this is important because mindfulness is just a word. It's it's an imprecise translation of the word sati. It's not the most literal translation out there. Um, it's not a bad translation, not a terrible translation. But it's not what is directly meant by the word sati. Sati means, sati comes from the root sara, which means to remember. So it was used in a non-Buddhist context um, to refer to being able to remember things that happened a long time ago. If you've got sati, you're a person with a good memory. You're a person who uh, who is sharp-minded in a sense. Now, when the Buddha came along, the idea was that you remember, or you uh, you reflect on something. Maybe reflect is a little closer to how it's used in a meditative sense. 
But it doesn't have anything to do with exactly mindfulness. It's the same sort of idea. So, but the best way to understand in Theravada Buddhism, the best way under, to understand something is to look up what we call the Lakanadi Chatuka. I think I've actually gone over this, or we've gone over it in our Visuddhi Magga course. Um, Lakanadi Chatuka is um, the fourfold qualities of something. All Dhammas in Buddhism are given um, this set of four, four uh, attributes. We're starting with the lakana, the characteristic. So you have the the characteristic of something. What's it like? Uh, you have the rasa, which is the function, is what it does. Uh, the pachupatana, which is the, or, yeah, the pachupatana, which is the manifestation, which means how it presents itself. And then the uh, the padatana, which is the proximate cause. What is it that causes that dhamma? So in the Visuddhimagga, it's got many, many lists of these. And in one list we have sati mentioned, which is, you know, it's, it's a really, to pull out sati as the, um, and define it in this way is quite useful, I think, as you'll see. So the characteristic of sati is something called apilapana, which means non-wavering or wobbling. The characteristic of, of mindfulness. And and here we're thinking of a, um, not just reflecting on something, but a state of mind that is reflective or that is is remembering. Is uh, and We don't have a word in English for that, but it's... it's um, it's mindful, for lack of a better word. Um, it doesn't waver from the object. So the the ordinary mind is is uh, unstable, right? It flits here and there. And sati is something that grasps an object, grasps in in a in an English sense, right? When you're able to grasp a concept or something, so the grasping of an object is to really. Uh, experience it fully Hence um, and Perhaps mindful is good in that sense Because you fully You get it fully in your mind Your mind is fully aware of it uh, the, the function is Asamosa Asamosa means not forgetting is once you grasp something, when you grasp something, you remember it. You you stay with it. Um, so, in an in an ordinary sense, this would mean being able to remember clearly things that happened in the past or even in the future. But from a meditative point of view, it means remembering the actual experience. So when you have pain, now we all. Um, even even not meditating when we have pain we're aware that we have pain right but that awareness that knowledge is lost or that bare experience is gone in the next moment because in the next moment we're judging it we're disliking it we're trying to figure out how to get rid of it we're doing everything but experiencing it 
And so in that sense we've forgotten it. With mindfulness you don't forget the object, right? And so when we say to ourselves, pain, pain, we're remembering it, we're reminding ourselves. And the, 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 the result, the consequence is that we remember it. The manifestation is uh, araka, which means uh, protection or guarding. It manifested as a guarded state, a state that um, is protected from defilement. So the the mind that is is aware of pain, pain, the mind that is aware that it is pain. Is in, is in, invincible, is impervious, is non-reactive. That's actually a um, somewhat a specific manifestation. I mean, it's it's a characteristic of the experience that is important for Buddhists. But the other, it says, or the manifestation is as um, the state of confronting. The objective field, so confronting the object, um, which is a little bit more clear about what we mean by the function of mindfulness. And it's interesting because when you think about it um, practically, this is what we're trying to do: is confront our problems. Normally, when we have a, a, a problem, we'll run away from it, or when we're confronted by something attractive, we'll chase after it. We're unable to confront it, to stay with it, right? When something good comes, we're unable to um, to rest without without obtaining it. When something bad comes, unpleasant comes, we're unable to rest until it's gone. We are unable to face it. So, this is clearly what what we're talking about when we. When we use this word mindfulness or sati Is not trying to change things I mean, the idea that meditators get mistakenly Is that when you say pain, pain The pain is supposed to go away Or going to go away well, It's neither supposed to go away Nor going to go away I mean, sometimes it may Sometimes the pain is caused by stress in the mind So when you're mindful It does go away But not always no, the point is to confront the pain and to, to straighten out our minds, to strengthen our minds so that we're able to experience things and not forget them, not get lost in uh, reactions, judgments. So that's the, uh, the manifestation. The last one is the proximate cause, and this one—I mean, this whole thing is really actually this—you know—this talk tonight, the the, talk, the content here is very important. It's very important for us to understand because we use this word and we say, "Oh, what are we practicing?" Here we teach mindfulness, right? I always say, "We're here to practice mindfulness meditation." So here you now you have an understanding of what that means. So the the proximate cause of mindfulness, and this is important because it, it it answers the question, how do you be mindful? How do you come to be mindful? 
proximate cause is something called tirasanya, which I think many of you have heard me say before. Sanya is is um, well, it means different things, but um, here it means the perception of an object, how you perceive it. So sanya can mean the 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 recognition of something. You look at, you see a woman, you see a man, you see a tree, you hear something, and you recognize. Sanya is what helps you recognize her, or is the recognition of the object. Um, but it can also just mean the perception of something. And so that's the bare perception. When you see something, the perception of seeing, that's sanya. So tira, sanya is always there. Sanya is, is in every experience, but tira sanya. It's a really interesting word that you don't hear mentioned that much. I bring it up quite a lot because I'm interested in it. But tira sanya, tira means strong or or uh, firm, which is interesting because sanya is already there. So all we're doing is strengthening the perception. What does that mean? If you want to be, if you want mindfulness to arise, it requires some. It requires a strengthening of the perception. In the context of the other aspects of this description, it should be fairly clear. You're strengthening your your experience of it. You're strengthening your your uh, your mind, the mind that experiences it. And so, hence the reason why we repeat to ourselves, pain, pain, because we have the perception of pain. All we're doing is reaffirming, affirming that. Right? That's what a mantra does. Mantra is an ancient meditation technique, and that's its purpose: is to strengthen the perception of the object. So, whether it be on a concept or whether it be on reality, tirasanya is is the cause of of the grasping of the object. Or, in a in a practical, more mundane sense, it says, or the proximate cause is just the the foundations of mindfulness beginning with the body so when we when we teach mindfulness we we try to bring up you know i usually um have people read my booklet and the first thing in the booklet is the four foundations of mindfulness and that's what it's saying here that um what's what's the approximate cause of mindfulness while well, practicing the four foundations of mindfulness And so these are the body, being mindful of the body when you, when the stomach rises and falls, or when you move your hands, or so on. When you walk, walking, walking, stepping right, stepping left. Being mindful of the body that way is uh, the cause of mindfulness. Vedana, number two is Vedana, so being mindful of pain. If you feel pain, say pain, pain. If you feel happy, say happy, happy or calm, calm. The mind is thinking, thinking about the past or future, good thoughts, bad thoughts, being mindful of thoughts. And four is Dhamma. The Dhamma are many different things. We have the emotions or the hindrances, liking, disliking, drowsiness, distraction, doubt, and so on, all, all mind states that arise, judgments that arise or... or well, states of mind that are that are not n not neutral. All of those states, which are hindrances. 
Uh, we have the senses, so seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, thinking, being mindful of all that. So the four satipatthana are, are just a description of, of us and our experience. And the practice of mindfulness based on them, of course, is what leads to mindfulness. So that's the Lakkana Dichatuka. That is a I think a fairly good all round, well rounded explanation of, of mindfulness. The last thing this text says, which is also quite interesting, is well, I mean, it's neat. It gives a, it gives a description of how you should how it should be seen. It says Aramane Dalha Patitita Patitita Panaesikavya. says but or or furthermore mindfulness should be mindfulness is like a pillar in that it is well established stuck firmly established in the object so the ordinary mind is, and the texts do go into detail about this, the ordinary mind is like a gourd, a pumpkin, let's say, a pumpkin floating on the water. Uh, so the ordinary mind is, is, you know, it's bounced about by the waves of, of experience, uh, going with the current. The ordinary mind is, is very much susceptible to experience to loss, to gain, to praise, to blame, and so on. But the mindful mind is like a, a pillar that's stuck in the bottom of, in, in the, stuck in the ground, and the water can't, uh, can't buffet it. And it's not moved by the currents or the vicissitudes. The mind is not moved by the vicissitudes of life whether it's blame or praise or fame or loss or um, happiness suffering the good or the bad a good meditation session, a bad meditation session the mindful mind is not buffeted by good or bad experiences it's not caught up by experiences so when seeing or hearing or smelling or tasting or feeling or thinking the there is no reaction and thus no suffering this right here this is the um, this is really the core of Buddhism just this little paragraph that's wonderful because I get feedback from people who tell me I think uh, last night right one of the questions was basically saying how how great how, how amazed they were how remarkable it was how well this works I think so too. It's a big reason why I'm here repeating these things on the internet. The last thing it says is um, it should also be seen as mindfulness should also be seen as uh, like a dovarika, dovarika via, like a doorkeeper, a gatekeeper. Because Chakku Rakanato Because it protects or guards the 
doors, starting with the eye, the eye door and so on. Mindfulness is often, I think I mentioned, the mindfulness is often likened to a doorkeeper because um, all of our experiences come through the senses, the eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body and the mind. And um, in a sense, these are called the doors, and so in a sense, um, this is how the defilements get to us. This is how defilements enter our hearts when you experience something and you're not mindful of it so you're not guarding that door then the defilements come liking, disliking, anger, frustration, addiction, worry, stress all causes of suffering come And so mindfulness is this guard. When you're mindful, you're mindful at the senses. When seeing, it's just seeing. When you say to yourself, seeing, you're reminding yourself. When you remind yourself, there's, there, there's no reaction. This is this. It's not good, it's not bad, it's not me, it's not mine. It is what it is. That's what mindfulness gives us. Mindfulness is a quality of uh, that we cultivate and that we become comfortable with or familiar with and that becomes part of our patterned behavior it becomes a habit and through the practice of mindfulness of course this is what leads to insight and insight of course is what leads to freedom so this is the path this is what the buddha said is the ekayana manga I've talked um, for quite a bit and what I think I'm going to do is obviously I'm going to have to shorten that when I actually give my talk good to know um, but I'm going to give the second half tomorrow I think right? if I'm here tomorrow if I don't die in the meantime I'll give the second half tomorrow okay so thank you all for coming out that's the Dhamma for tonight See if there are any questions. If I can get to the questions. Oh, looks good. Okay. A bunch of questions. Oh no, a bunch of. Okay. Questions. You guys can go. You better not uh, to sit and listen to these. Uh, not really related to the practice not always related to the practice should I only be mindful of my own actions throughout the day or try by focusing on the external environment as well such as the immediate surroundings you should try to be mindful of whatever you can I mean if you're clear what is the um, field or the the um, uh, what's the word well the the Boundaries of what it, of mindfulness because con you can't be mindful of concepts that's not part of our practice. I'll talk a little bit more about that tomorrow. Um, but as long as it's reality, as long as it's an ex uh, an expression of reality, 
That's what you should be mindful of. So, as far as the external environment, well, you're 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 aware of your experience of it. So, seeing, you'd say seeing. If it's hearing, you would say hearing, hearing, that kind of thing. In regards to letting go of control and yet still doing the things you're responsible for. You're not actually asking a question. I think I know what you're getting at, but it's a little too complicated for me. I'd like you to maybe um, pinpoint exactly what you want to know. You want to know about letting go of con letting go, and yet still doing what is responsible. Well, I mean, I can talk to that. Talk about that. Um, what, what are you responsible for? It's just a. It's just a. A duty, you know, and it's it's part of what is most efficient. So that doesn't change. I mean, just because you're very mindful doesn't mean you stop doing good things for people. Because doing good things is generally the most efficient thing to do. It it prevents a lot of stress and suffering and complications. But um, the rest of that, I don't really have much to speak about. Consumed by extreme guilt and self-hatred over a mistake I made a long time ago, how do you overcome a horrible deed you committed? Well, you you be mindful of the guilt and self-hatred. I mean, it's a bad habit, so habits are hard to uh, hard to overcome. But it's part of our practice. I mean, none of it, none of this is really easy. It just takes time and a lot of work. But uh, it's important to realize that it's not good to feel guilt. It's not good to hate yourself. So, so you can stop that. Stop actively encouraging it. That that's that's as much evil. I mean, that's really evil. You know, it's evil as well as the evil thing you did. Is it wholesome to celebrate the wonders and beauty of life? Now it's kind of unwholesome. Because life is wretched and ugly. <laughs> no, I don't know about that. Life is a tough one because life, life is is just a concept, right? But um, you know, our existence is pretty wretched. So <laughs> if you're celebrating it, there might be a problem there. What do I mean by that? I, t I talked about wretched right a couple of days ago or yesterday. No, a couple of days ago, I think. Yeah. Um, Yeah, no, you get intoxicated by these things and, and it creates a pattern of of attachment. It doesn't actually make you happier. And it's very contentious. I'm sure there are people who disagree very strongly with what I'm saying, which of course is fine. The Buddha said, Etapasati Manglokang, come look at this world, Jitang Raja Radupamang, which is just decked out just like a royal chariot. Yathabala Visidanti, I think. Nati Sanko 
I don't remember the Pali. Um, the fool gets enamored by it. You see a beautiful king's chariot, and you think how wonderful, how marvelous it is. The world is like that, all decked out. So many beautiful things, wonderful things. But the wise are not have, have no connection with it. If the world is such a beautiful place, why is there so much suffering? I mean, this is really the question. Why is there so much evil? Why is there so much wretchedness? Why are we not truly happy? Can the world make us happy? I think the answer is no. That's really the point. So our wretchedness really comes from trying to find happiness in the world. Happiness is it's possibly happy in the world, but you have to be you have to be above it in a sense. You have to be uh, independent, not susceptible to the changes of life. Right? I mean, it's not that you don't experience the changes, but our problem is that when we experience them, we're not we're not in tune with them. So I think we often mix this this wonder and appreciation with being in tune with reality. A person who's in tune with reality, it's like a part they're a part of the landscape. Right? Here's the difference. That's because it's romantic to think of someone standing there appreciating the mountain, right? But the the classical Zen story is here I here we sit the mountain and me until only the mountain remains. Because eventually the, the enlightened being becomes a part of the landscape. So rather than the person admiring it, they are a part of it. That's quite different, you see. You don't become part of the landscape by admiring it. In fact, you become quite enamored and will often do your best to try and fix it and make it the way you want it to be. Control it, right? We love nature so much that we've destroyed it. Trying to make it perfect so we can have the perfect climate. We've destroyed our climate. Does meditation help with improving oneself? Yes, absolutely. That's what meditation is for. In, in one sense, I suppose. I mean, in a deeper level, it's for letting go of yourself. But, uh, but that's an improvement. What do you think of meditation as a means to reaching mundane goals instead of reaching enlightenment or spiritual goals? Did the Buddha speak of this? Um, I mean, it depends how mundane, right? It can't be used to get greedy. It can't be used to become ambitious. So being successful in, in business is probably not... Uh, probably not possible. Um, but no, I mean meditation improves things really. The problem with what you're what you're referring to is that those things don't actually have any purpose or benefit. So, because mindfulness leads to wisdom, it's going to show you that you're going to see that those things are useless and certainly won't help you accomplish them. I mean, the, the only thing is that's a good thing because those things are not worth obtaining anyway. But, I mean, as far as helping with health and general well-being, 
living your life more peacefully. I mean, it's very much a part of it. Okay, so that's uh, our. That's all for the questions. That's all for tonight. Thank you all for coming out. Have a good night.